You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. You may have noticed something in the Gospel of Luke that Luke loves the word wonder, marvel, and amaze. It is about in every chapter. Take a look at where we've been so far with things. At Jesus' birth, announced by angels, and it says, all who heard it wondered at what had been told to the shepherds. When Jesus was just a toddler at the temple, his father and his mother marveled what was said about him. When people came up and said things about the baby, they were just blown away, just like the shepherds had been at the angels. When Jesus was a little older and a boy at the temple, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. Jesus, grown up at the synagogue, we're in Luke 4 now, all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Jesus is always at church. There's this idea that, like, you got to leave the church to go find Jesus. It's like, man, you haven't read the Bible. (laughs) He is at the synagogue every single moment in every chapter telling people about himself. Next, Jesus is synagogue again, and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word for authority and power? He commands unclean spirits, and they came out. Jesus does miracles. The amazement sees them all. They glorify God and we're filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. There's like four different amazement words in one sentence there. Jesus and the fish, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken when he pulled so many fish into the net that the net was breaking. And then last, Jesus and the paralyzed man, amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And if you leave it up here, these are basically the exact same verse, a chapter away. We got Luke is like running out of vocabulary words to describe how amazing Jesus is. So he's repeating himself. And what Luke is asking you through six chapters, Jesus is amazing, isn't he? Jesus is worthy of our awe. Jesus is so wonderful, there's nothing else quite like him. The works and words of this man are truly astonishing. And so the question becomes, isn't he amazing to us? But it shifts today in chapter 7. Because instead of just amazement at Jesus, we find out what amazes Jesus. What makes Jesus marvel? What makes God stop and pause and consider? And it's right here, verse 2. Jesus entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, Hey, this guy, he's worthy. He's worthy to have you do this. We know he's a Gentile. We know he's a non-Jew. But he's worthy to have you do this for him. Why? Because he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. Verse 6, so Jesus went with them. And Jesus went with them. And what a centurion is, is revealed by his title. A centurion was a Roman commander in charge of a century or about a hundred men. So it was a pretty prestigious title and authority, and they're usually known for being kind of these virtuous Romans. 
Soldiers could be all up and down in the Roman Empire of their virtue or their goodness. But if you're a centurion, you probably demonstrated a somewhat virtuous life, at least to Roman standards, and a loyalty to Rome. You were entrusted with 100 guys. That's a lot of dudes. And the 12 mentions of centurions all throughout the New Testament, they're always depicted as these kind of fair-minded men, these men who are thinking things through and following orders or maybe even virtuous or good or at least will listen to the gospel. Notably, the Gentile Cornelius in Acts 10 is a centurion who converts with Peter. And we see that's the case here. The centurion, he cares about his servant. They used to have these giant households if you were a rich person where there was all sorts of people who served and worked for the many businesses all around kind of your giant household. He cares about his servant. He values this person. He wants them to be healed. All uncommon things for Romans, all uncommon things for this era. And he's heard about Jesus and he asked the favor of the local elders, the Jewish elders of the synagogue, to go to Jesus. And the elders make this ask of Jesus, but they do it with a pitch. They believe this Gentile man is worthy of Jesus' attention because of two things. One, this Gentile, he loves the Jews. He's a good local ruler, probably, of Capernaum. Perhaps he's even a God-fearing Gentile, someone who's converted to Judaism, even though he's not ethnically Jewish. And the second thing is he proved his love by building the synagogue. And this could mean he gave sizable money to it, that he secured it politically, the space, could mean all sorts of things. But this guy both loves us and has proved his love. And this is the same synagogue that Jesus had preached at in chapter 4. It's like 80 feet from Peter's mother-in-law's house. So it's all right there. Everyone kind of knows each other in the story. But notice Jesus says nothing to all this talk of worthiness. He doesn't go, oh, good point. He didn't go, right-o. He just goes. Verse 6. When Jesus is not far from the house, the centurion, he gets kind of word Jesus is on his way and city's not that big. And he sent his friends to him saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. And while the Jewish elders had emphasized the centurion's worthiness, the centurion is very aware of his unworthiness. The centurion doesn't bring a spiritual resume before Jesus. So much so, the centurion says, hey, don't even come under my roof. Like, Like, you are too big and too good and too holy to even be in my dwelling place. And this might be because he's a Gentile. It might be because he's a man of war, probably a guy who's killed some guys. But it seems more so that the centurion's just aware that Jesus isn't just another rabbi. That Jesus is doing things that no one's done. He's speaking in ways no one spoke. He's healing and doing things that no one has done. And whatever the case, the centurion understands that he's not worthy of Jesus. But the centurion also sees Jesus' goodness and power. 
He sees his goodness and power, and so he makes this argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, if I'm a commander with authority from Rome that can make soldiers do this and that, then Jesus, you're the king who has authority from God, who can make anything happen by your mere words, even by distance, even not even being present. And the centurion rightly sees the goodness and power of Jesus, which makes him aware of his unworthiness before God. But the centurion also sees, because of Jesus' goodness and power, that Jesus helps unworthy people. Well, his goodness and power make him feel unworthy. He also knows it's the same goodness and power that makes Jesus actually help people and have the power to actually do it. And the question is, do you see God like that? Is someone who helps unworthy, helpless people? We like a comfortable religion where God just rewards the good and punishes the bad. But here we have a Jesus who actually helps unworthy, helpless people who are very different from him. And just like Jesus' holiness, unclean things don't make Jesus unclean, but rather Jesus makes unholy things holy. That actually holiness flows from Jesus to unholy people. Worthiness flows from a worthy Jesus to unworthy people. And if you're sitting in your mind and this is kind of upsetting the boxes and kind of flipping the carts of the categories in our mind, then you're, you're right there. You're getting his point. Because look at this chart. This is how we think about religion. We got four slides. Most of us think we are worthy and we think God is good, which results in a faith that glorifies us that God is mostly here to celebrate me. It leads to a faith that puts God as a cheerleader to say, you're right, I am a good person. You're right, I do deserve blessing. You're right. And it builds a faith that tangentially needs God, but doesn't actually, because we're worthy and we're good and we're mostly right, and God's here to cheer me on. That's the religion of this world. You can slap Islam on top. You can slap uh, Judaism being practiced on top. You can slap a version of Buddhism on top, Hinduism. It is a right wrong, but I'm mostly right because I judge others who are mostly wrong. And I'm mostly right and I will be rewarded. And Jesus is flipping that card of thinking all the way over like in a marketplace. Second way people think is this, that we are worthy We think God is bad or doesn't exist or can't help or is powerless, which results faith in ourselves, that God doesn't matter, but we sure do. This is probably the prevailing notion of our age as a fancy title that people don't use, but what it is, it's called humanism. The deep down you believe all humans, including yourself, are good, and if we just like, you know, work a little harder or or, or partner a little better or you know, be a little more sensitive, it'll all work out, and God is mostly irrelevant or unhelpful. Even religion might be holding us back. That's humanism, and it results in a faith. You'd say, that. oh, that's no faith. No, it results in a faith in ourselves. And Boy, is it exhausting when you realize 
as much as I try harder, I'm still me. Third way to look at it. We think we're unworthy. We think God is bad. There's results in no faith that can exist. There's simply no hope. If deep down you believe there's nothing spiritual about the world and you believe that you're part of the problem that exists on earth, it leads to a spiral of deep helplessness. It's paralyzing. It's nihilism in the big term, but it's hopelessness in the everyday reality. Hopelessness thrives when you believe there's no God up there or maybe he's bad or indifferent to me and I don't have any solutions either that will last either a hopeless helplessness or just a materialism that says, well, I guess I'll just try to get the house. Maybe a pool will make me happy. But the last is this, and this is what Jesus is teaching and showing us, that where we think we're unworthy, we think God is actually good, and not just good, but good and powerful as the Bible teaches, not just good and powerful, but good, powerful, and perfect as the Bible teaches, not just good, powerful, and perfect, but the creator of all things, the Lord, the sovereign one of all things, that everything good, true, and beautiful belongs and was made by the God of the universe. That's a full biblical faith, and under that faith, we find ourselves as people who do have sins. Whether we're more good or more bad than the next person is irrelevant. But because before a holy and perfect God, we find ourselves unworthy of him. Yet instead of smiting us, instead of ignoring us, we find the goodness, power, and perfection of God actually comes near us. Jesus doesn't care about this man's resume. He ain't concerned he's a Gentile. He doesn't even concern that he's one of the oppressors. The Romans had conquered the Jews. They were not friends. Money had won over the elders of the synagogue. Some religion had won them over. But for Jesus, he was already on his side because he's a human with breath in his lungs and he has shows need for God. Jesus doesn't come because he's impressed with the centurion, no matter how virtuous they are. Caesar was impressed by that. Augustus, the Romans were impressed by that. Jesus is impressed by this man who has need and sees God for who he is. And it results in a faith that glorifies God. If you're like, man, I haven't walked with God in a minute. I don't even know what all this is about. Start with your great need for God and turn to him and live. That there's a God who can meet you in your need, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, that God will draw near to you. This man asked like through an emissary, asked through his friends, told him he wasn't worthy. And Jesus says, oh, I'll do this healing for sure. He doesn't debate it. He doesn't have to think about it. Compassion is for the centurion. This worthiness doesn't flow from our works. That's in the bulletin. Doesn't flow from our works, but from Jesus. Worthiness is what's been called passive righteousness. If you've done the new member discipleship program, you've heard that word before, passive righteousness. It comes to us, this rightness or righteousness of God, passively. We don't work from it, but it's truly a gift from God. If you got to work for it, it ain't a gift. It's a result. It's a wage. It's payment. But God gives his righteousness, spiritual worthiness, as a gift. 
And when we get that worthiness, love, grace, forgiveness, whatever you want to call it, pardon from God flows from Jesus to make us worthy to God. That's when you get Christianity. Anything less than that isn't Christianity. That's why I don't use a lot of Christian speak language because none of that makes me righteous before God. That's like salad dressing. It's just, you know, great. You can use a lot. You can use a little. Ain't getting you home. We need the true righteousness of God that only comes from Jesus. That's the gospel. Romans 3.21 says it like this. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. All the Old Testament's been leading to this point where God would make a way. Verse 22, we're made right with God by, God by placing our faith in Jesus. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are, Jew, Gentile, good, bad, everybody. God is coming to us. Verse 23, why does he need to do this? How is he going to do it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have been declared unworthy of God. Everybody. In verse 24, all are justified or made right freely by God's grace, his favor, his love through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Its citizens were happily obsessed with talking about Jesus and the gospel. Why? Because the universe is about Jesus and the gospel. It's the center of our faith. If anything else is at the center, it ain't Christianity. He's not a side. He's the main course, and he's the only course. And all the other things hover and rotate around Jesus as Lord and Savior of all. But how quickly do we go back to the thinking of the Jewish elders? It's easy to be like, yeah, you know, yeah, that's it. I'm I'm here. But I know in my heart and in my mind, I retreat from that bold truth pretty quickly. And now what I retreat back to is the thinking of these Jewish elders that are refusing passive righteousness and are choosing to make their own righteousness as revealed by their comments about this man. And this happens whenever we start thinking we deserve God because it usually comes along with, and they don't, whoever they is to you. It sounds like this in our heart. I deserve Jesus because what I do. I deserve Jesus because who my family is. I deserve Jesus because look at my commitments. I'm overloaded for Jesus. I deserve Jesus because of my sexual purity. I deserve Jesus because I belong to the right local church, whatever that means. And we know we're infected with self-righteousness whenever we start to judge another person thinking I'm accepted or a better person before God than blank. As soon as we begin to compare our righteousness to one another, it reveals we are building a self-righteousness and departing from the sweet grace of Jesus. Because self-righteousness needs someone to put down in order to puff oneself up. Always. It can't help itself. Because no one's self-righteous if they're staring Jesus in the face. You got to look down at somebody.
Jesus is showing us righteousness, worthiness comes from Jesus and flows to us needy people like the centurion. Passive righteousness activates good works in us. The centurion here is full of good works, and those good works are still good. Jesus doesn't condemn them at all. They help people. They, they build relationships. They build meaning and love. They lead people to faith. They just aren't the bridge to God, and Jesus is the only bridge. Good works are evidence of a changed life, but they don't make Jesus move. Jesus moves towards us because he's good and he seeks and saves the lost. We don't come to Jesus showing off how good we are, but we come to him in our great need because Jesus has the power to take the unworthy and make them worthy before God. Amen? Amen. And to clarify, I'm not talking about self-worth here. Everyone should have an appropriate amount of self-esteem or self-confidence or self-worth, whatever we want to call it. That is good and healthy because you were created by God and you have worth. You're created by God. You're in the image of God. And believing you have worth and dignity and deserve respect from others, humans, is just part of being in God's image. And we should carry a healthy, appropriate amount of self-worth or self-respect. And the discussion here isn't about self-worth. That centurion has plenty. Everyone thinks he's great. Even the people that he's an oppressor to think he's great. Well, he's talking about a spiritual unworthiness before God, of which we're all unworthy and only made worthy by Jesus himself. And it is this very work of the unworthy becoming worthy, the work of the gospel, that amazes Jesus. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things... When he heard what the friends had said, he marveled at him, the centurion, and turning to the crowd that followed, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such a faith. Jesus is amazed that the gospel is at work in this man's life. He's amazed to see that he has placed his faith, seeing his unworthiness in a God who is good and powerful. He has discerned that while Jesus is good and powerful, that's a good thing for us. And the centurion has placed his faith in God. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. I love this miracle because Jesus isn't even in the building. Other times he touches, other times he touches eyes, other times he says a word. Jesus heals in such a variety of ways to make us see it's never a magic trick. It's just the power of God at work. And the servant is healed. Jesus is amazed by the gospel at work in us. Yet the second story today shows us another side to Jesus. That while Jesus answers our prayers and answers our requests, Jesus also goes looking for us. Verse 11, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nan, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. You can imagine this massive crowd, maybe hundreds of people are now following Jesus around. What's going to happen next? The town apparently isn't that far away. Verse 12, and as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. 
Jesus stays on the move. He continues. He's already said, I'm here to preach the gospel. I'm going to the next synagogue. I'm going next town. I'm on a giant circuit, hitting all these places, telling them the Messiah is here, and his name is Jesus. And he meets kind of these two crowds converge. One is leaping for joy, following Jesus, who's healing and teaching like no one's ever heard. And another crowd is carrying a dead body out of the town. And they're going to meet right here at the gate. And in their culture, a widow would be at the very front of the procession. She would literally lead the mourning for the rest of the family, the friends, the town. Her wailing and weeping would come first. They carried the man on planks of wood, just like a coffin in our culture, like on the shoulders. And they were carrying him out of the town because he's ritually unclean. You weren't supposed to touch a dead body under the Jewish law. So they're taking him out to kind of give the final rites, pray, sing, bury. And for the widow, this feels probably like the end of a lot of things. It was not an easy culture to be a widow in. To lose your only son, who we find out is young, meaning under 20, definitely under 30, even harder. The sadness, disappointment, even economic hardship are all lying in front of this woman's sobs. It's a desperate moment. The boy that probably resembled this lost husband is now gone too. It's not hard to see this woman's former life is slipping away. The two crowds collide. And Jesus... What's he going to do? Verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the briar and the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. And began to speak. Jesus gave him to his mother. What did Jesus do? First, Jesus saw this woman. It's the first verb there is. He saw her. And in that little word, we see all of the Old Testament kind of marching in on that word. That God is known as El Roy. The God who sees and knows you. That over and over when people are in trouble in the Old Testament... It's the God who sees them, who's there for them. Second, we see that Jesus has compassion. The Greek word there means moved in your guts. His compassion is not just, oh, I should do this, or like, this is what's right. But Jesus starts to mourn with this person at what's going on, that he's so moved that he has intestinal discomfort at realizing and feeling the pain of this woman. If you ever wonder if God cares, this is a good example to just sit with. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. What Jesus does is what the whole Trinity does and thinks all the time. And next, he draws so close to this woman that he can whisper, don't cry, maybe even take the tears off her face, not because weeping is wrong. Weeping is right in this scenario. But Jesus knows a celebration's about to erupt. He walks over to what's a coffin. 
He touches the dead body. Remember, Jesus makes things clean. Uncleanliness has no effect on him. And we have Jesus' first resurrection miracle. As the boy breathes into his dead lungs, rises up, and Jesus stands there as Lord over dead, handing the boy off the literal coffin into his mother's arms, just as Elijah did in 1 Kings 17. That there's moment to see that, oh, Jesus is greater than the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Jesus is greater than the laws of Moses. Jesus is who he says he is, the God who can bring us back from the dead and will do one day. Notice the centurion sought Jesus. The widow just weeps. And Jesus heard both and had endless compassion for them. Jesus gives compassion to anyone who needs it. We have a God of limitless compassion. And here's what it means for you. Did you know Jesus has heard every sob of your entire life? He didn't miss a one. He never laughed. He never pulled back. But he draws near. Whatever has happened in your life or is happening right now, Jesus sees you. He also has compassion on you and draws near to you. The rest of your life is this unfolding of God's compassion to you. That's what following Jesus is like. Sometimes we hear following Jesus like we need to become a Marine for the Lord and we're going to take every hill. And there are some tough commands of Jesus. But put them right beside this. That following Jesus is full of his commands for our good, but is full of compassion to heal us and bring us home. Amen? And the crowd, both crowds, verse 16, go wild. Fear sees them all. This is the good fear. They're like, hey, if you saw someone come out of a coffin, there'd be just a lot of feelings. And then you'd have a lot of feelings about the man God who did it. Suddenly, everything in life didn't seem to matter so much. Every, what you're going to eat later, not a big deal. God's in the house. And that's what they say. Fear sees them all. They glorify God. He literally turned their weeping and mourning into dancing in a moment. And a great prophet has risen among us. Probably the Jewish audience is like, uh-oh, whoa, this is 1 Kings 17 and, and greater. And others are saying, and God has visited his people. Everyone's probably saying this, the long-promised God who's coming to us, he's here. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. And it amazes past maybe any other amazement because sick people do sometimes get better. It's amazing and it's good, but it can happen. But long dead people who've been on a coffin and carried around, they don't come back to life. Our response to Jesus is to simply be amazed. That's what Luke's asking you. Isn't Jesus amazing? Isn't Jesus amazing? And at the end of every chapter, he's kind of asking you, right? Right? Isn't he amazing? Right? And there's three steps I want us to take today. 
to fall in love with this Jesus. And the first way to fall in love with Jesus today is let your heart and mind be amazed. Join the crowd in expressing yourself in joyful worship, a real response to a real God. You have an opportunity to do that in worship in just a few minutes. It's okay to let your heart explode for Jesus, one who loves you and isn't going to break your heart. Isn't that why we hold back in love? Whether we're dating, marriage, friendship, roommates, we kind of pull back a little bit, extended family, because we think, well, maybe they'll break my heart. Let the stories prove that Jesus isn't out here breaking hearts. He's breaking down false beliefs. He's upsetting expectations. But when it comes to your heart, you couldn't be in safer hands. It's not all state, it's Jesus. Step two, I want you to seriously think about the last time you cried. If you're an easy crier, it's like, oh, Tuesday. Yep, got it. If you're a hard crier, it may have been a decade. I don't know. But think of the last time you cried and realize Jesus has compassion for you, whatever it was. What if you believe none of your tears were silly? For an adult, Tyler has some silly tears. He's four. But what if you deep down believe you never had another silly tear again and in your adult life you've never had one? You might have been wrong in your crying. You, might, you know, it might be inappropriate, whatever. But Jesus at least cares. And what if you took that and fell in love with the Jesus that says, everyone needs compassion, and guess who freely gives it, even when not asked? This widow is probably so lost her grief, she probably didn't even have her head up to notice a couple hundred people walking at her. And Jesus meets her with a hug doesn't demand an explanation, doesn't review her whole life, doesn't review her faith, all this stuff. Jesus just gives compassion and sees this woman, and he sees you. Jesus answers prayer, and Jesus draws near to our tears. Step three, in falling in love with Jesus, I want you to remember, and don't stay here, but remember the last time you really sinned. So not like a marginal thing. You're like, ah, oh, ask for, for forgiveness. I like cut someone off in traffic. It's like, is it a sin? Probably not nice, but like sin's heavy. Think of the last time. Don't dwell here, but think of the last time you really sinned where you can clearly say, yeah, I offended a holy God and probably hurt someone else in the process. Probably. And I want you to embrace that if your hope is in Jesus, you are really, truly forgiven and free of all the sins, but of that one too. That your worthiness is not hanging on your record, but on Jesus's. If it's hanging on our record, good luck. Sounds exhausting and condemning. But if it's hanging on Jesus's, we can breathe in deep and say, yes, I do sin and I have a real savior who comes near to me, whether I pray or I just need him. That love is always on the way if Jesus is leading the parade. Fall in love with a Jesus who won't break your heart and will never let you down. Worship a Jesus as amazed people and worship with all of your heart.